0: Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible like this under the chair in front of you, our pew Bible. Go ahead and grab this. And if you go to page 821, I believe, yeah, pages 821 to 822 in the pew Bible here, you will find um, Jonah chapter 2. It's a small book. It's only four pages or two, three pages in my Bible here, uh, two pages in some Bibles. And um, if, you've, if you're new to the Bible, Jonah is the name of the book, um, probably the author or at least the source of it. And the chapter 2 is the big number and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So Jonah chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. And then we'll pray. Hear then the word of the Lord from Jonah chapter 2. Jonah prayed to Yahweh, the Lord his God, from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill... What I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Father, salvation belongs to you and to you alone, and to your Son, Jesus our Savior, the Messiah. And so, Father, we pray now that you would save us. Some of us need initial saving, converting. Some of us have never repented from our sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. And so we need you to grant us the light of the knowledge of the gospel of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That people might turn from their sins and trust in you and be initially saved. And then there's the rest of us, Lord, here who are already Christian, and yet we confess as well that we need salvation. We need to be continually saved from our sin. And so we pray the same thing that you would grant us the gift of repentance the gift of faith in Jesus Christ, the gift of eyes to see and hearts to embrace Christ as our supreme treasure over everyone and everything else in this universe. We thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you for such a picture of a sinner and a failure who reflects us. We praise you, Lord, for what you're going to do in this time. Thank you that we don't get to just study this book on our own. We get to study it with our church family here and be shaped by it not only individually but together. So shape our church now, Father, and shift us. Break our pride, break our sin, break our self-centeredness, and mold us more to have your heart of love and joy and grace and holiness. This can only come about by your power, so we're asking you for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Growing up, my pastor would often say, you know, the most miserable people in the world are not non-Christians. The most miserable people in the world are not godless people, but Christians who profess to love God and yet choose to stay in their sin because they walk around with guilt. They walk around knowing better. They walk around knowing the God who saves them, knowing the God who is their true treasure and yet rejecting him. And so, not only do you have the guilt of your conscience, you have the guilt of the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin. And that's the most miserable people walking the earth today. Now, we all face this from time to time because we all sin, right? There is none righteous, no, not one. That's not only before you become a Christian, that's even after you convert to Christianity. We sin and we know better. We know better. The longer we go as Christian, the more we ought to be embarrassed about how much we know and don't live. But it's not just the sin on the outside. It's actually that when we sin and we know better, we start to feel a nagging guilt on the inside. Amen. right? There's, there's, a, there's a shame and there's a nagging guilt that, that takes away our peace and doesn't really let us rest. And so the question is, will sin, will that sin, that nagging guilt, because we haven't made right with God, because we haven't reconciled with God, because we haven't confessed our sins and sought cleansing from God, will that sin silence our conviction, or will the conviction that the Holy Spirit's um, bringing about in our lives, will that lead us out of our sin? So will the guilt crush us, or will the conviction lead us out of guilt and sin? And then we have to ask the question, how do we get out of our sin? This is a skill every Christian needs because we live life every day and we sin. So how do you get out of these situations where you get stuck in your sin? Well, in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah is stuck in his sin. If you remember from last week, in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah was given a command from God to go to Nineveh, 500 miles northeast, to go to Nineveh and go preach to them judgment. But Jonah refused. Instead, he went. He sought to go 2,500 miles west west Away from God, and he got, he went down from Jerusalem to Joppa. He went down from Joppa on land to the boat, and he went down in the boat to the bottom of the boat and sought to sleep his troubles away. Have you ever try to sleep your troubles away? Just sleep on your guilt. Maybe it'll go away when you wake up, right? So Jonah did that. That didn't work for Jonah. There was a storm that came. And so they had to figure out who's causing the storm or why, why are the gods or God? The other sailors thought there were other gods. Why is there this storm and what, whose, whose fault is it? Why is this supernatural power judging us? And so they figured out it was Jonah. Jonah confessed to the sailors, not to God, but to the sailors and was thrown over the ship. As soon as he was thrown over the ship, the storm stopped. The sailors start to believe in Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and worship Him. And Jonah is floating on the sea. Well, it says in Jonah 1.17 that God appointed. Look at Jonah one seventeen. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, Jonah chapter two is going to develop this story and give us a close up view. The story in Jonah 2, or the episode in Jonah 2, is really simple. Jonah is sinking. Jonah sinks down the sea. A fish swallows him. Jonah prays to the Lord. And then when you get to Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, God responds. And what's God's response in chapter 2, verse 10? He commands the fish, and the fish vomits Jonah onto dry land. So Jonah is the disobedient prophet, and God uses an obedient fish to save a disobedient prophet. The irony is thick in this book. Okay, so what's the main idea? With Jonah overboard, swimming, sinking, being swallowed by a fish, and then praying, and then being spat out, vomited out on dry land, what is the main idea here? The main idea that, that I want you to walk away, I think this is the main idea of the text, is God wants you to experience salvation through prayerful repentance. Experience salvation through prayerful repentance. I'm getting the word salvation from chapter 2, verse 10. Salvation belongs to Yahweh, the Lord. It says Lord, capital L-O-R-D. If you're new to this church, I'm going to say Yahweh oftentimes because that's the personal name of God. Okay, so um, that's who God is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So salvation belongs to Yahweh. That's the the point of the book. Some people say that's the point of the Bible, that God saves sinners. And so here... Jonah wants, or this, Jonah chapter 2, the point for us, whether you're a Christian or non Christian, we need to experience salvation. For non Christians, you need to experience initial salvation. For Christians, you need to experience ongoing experiences, fresh experiences of salvation. And that comes through prayerful repentance. Okay? It comes through prayerful repentance. So we'll learn how to experience the salvation in three steps. Really, you've got three layers in this chapter on this prayer that goes deeper and deeper and deeper. So the prayer is given the general introduction or the proclamation of salvation in chapter 2, verse 2. That's the first verse of the prayer. In chapters, in verses 3 through 6, you have the pattern, I'm sorry, the picture of Jonah's salvation. And then in chapter, in verses 7 through 9, you have Jonah's pattern of repentance that he's commending to you. Okay, so you have the general proclamation, God saves me. Then you have Jonah recounting his experience of being saved, and then at the end you say, Jonah, what are your takeaways from your experience? Here's my takeaways. Here's the pattern. Here's what you could take away for your life, for your experience of salvation. Okay? You guys got that? So the proclamation of it, and then you you get it developed in the picture of it in Jonah's life, and then kind of Jonah's takeaways, the pattern that you're supposed to imitate in your own life to experience salvation. So let's start number one with the proclamation of salvation. So point number one is hear the proclamation of salvation. Hear the proclamation of salvation. Look at chapter two, verse two in your Bible. Okay, you guys there? Chapter two, verse two. It says, I called to Yahweh the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. So you heard my voice. So here you have, what what does Jonah do? What are the actions Jonah does in verse 2? Look at it. What are Jonah's actions? Say it. He what? Two things. He what? He called out to the Lord and he, use use the words from the text. He called out to the Lord. He didn't hear. He cried out to the Lord. Okay, so two things. He called out to the Lord and he cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. So he called out to the Lord and he cried out to the Lord. Here are the, you, you call on the Lord to save you and he, that's what Jonah does. If you're going to experience salvation, you need to call out on, to God to save you. So verse two is really, here's the overview. I call to God and he saved me. He heard me. He answered me. That's the overview. So Jonah calls out, God responds and listen, to, look, look at how God responds in verse two. What are the two ways God responds? In verse 2, it says, he answered me. And what's the second way? He what? He heard my voice. voice. So here we learn, when when you pray, God listens. God hears. God is not a deaf God. God is not a preoccupied God. God is not a God who's dropping the ball sometime, somewhere, because he forgot about you. Yes, there are seven plus billion people on earth today. But God can know every one of their prayers. He hears, he pays attention, he listens. And when you call on him to save you, he answers. Praise God that we have a God who answers our prayers when we call out and we cry out when we are stuck in our sin. He's not ignoring us. He's not giving us a silent treatment. And this is testified in the New Testament, Romans chapter 10, quoting the Old Testament, where Romans 10, Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. saved." And then he says, one believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. And then you know this part for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who what calls on the name of the Lord. And that's what Jonah does here. He calls on the Lord. He cries out to the Lord and God saves. God answers. God hears. So what does this mean for you? If you're not a Christian, call out to Jesus to save you. You're in sin, and we'll get more to that later, but you are stuck in sin if you're not a Christian, and you need to call on Jesus to save you. And if you're a Christian, guess what? You get stuck in sin too. And what do you need to do? Call on Jesus to save you, to get you out of that mess. And what does this mean for us as a church family? As a church family, this means that salvation is found when sinners call on Jesus. So what do we need to do as a church? We need to lead people to call on Jesus as a result of talking to you. How do you know if this church is doing their job? This church is doing their job when people encounter our people and they are encouraged to call on Jesus to save them. That's when we are being the body of Christ, showing them Christ. Whether they're a Christian and you're calling them to call on the name of the Lord again to save them, or whether they're non-Christian and you're reaching out to them and you're calling them to, to call on God to save them. That is when the church is doing their mission. That's when she's doing her mission. So how are we doing Bethany Baptist Church? Are people encouraged and exhorted to call on the Lord by virtue of interacting with us? Not just us individually, but us as a church family? That is the mark of a true church. If you're gonna know if you're if you're part of a true church that's part of the universal church, they call, they they encourage people to call on Jesus to save them and not save themselves by their own works or some mixture of the two. Call on Jesus and do a bunch of good things. And together You will be saved. No, that's not what that's not what the text says. Call on Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're a child here this morning, children, look to Jesus and not to your parents for happiness. Look to Jesus and not to your friends for happiness. Children, look to Jesus and not growing up for happiness. Isn't that what children is that what we do a lot as children? I just can't wait till I'm. 10 years old, or 15 years old, or 21 years old, and we're constantly looking to the next stage of life as if that's going to be when we find our happiness. That is not where your salvation is. It's not in growing up. Your salvation is in Jesus Christ, not in toys, not in school, not in friends, not in parents. And our world desperately needs to hear that our message as Christians is is simple. God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. So call on him to save you. All right, so what's the main idea here? Experience salvation from sinful pain through prayerful repentance. So we hear the proclamation in verse two, and now we're gonna get a deeper layer of this as it's developed in verses three through six as we see the picture of salvation through repentance. So, so point number two is see, see the picture or look at the picture of repentance, through, um, look at the picture of salvation through repentance in Jonah. So chapter two, verse three, let's move on. Look at two, three. And you have four points there: discipline. Discipline is from verse three. Here's the picture: discipline, realization, hope, and then salvation, in that order. So here's the discipline in verse three. Jonah is praying now in the belly of the fish. Sorry, I forgot to say this in the beginning. This whole prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving. This is a prayer of gratitude. We know that from the very last verse where he says, "I will fulfill. I will um, sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving." There are different kinds of psalms, different kinds of prayers in the psalms. This is a prayer of thanksgiving. So here's Jonah in the fish, praying a prayer of thanksgiving, but it begins by recounting the story. And so you see discipline in verse three. Look at verse three again. Here's Jonah praying to God, God, Yahweh, you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas and the current overcame me. All of your breakers and your billows swept over me. Who did this? God did, right? That's what Jonah's saying. You're disciplining me. You did this. You sent the storm. You sent the waves. You're in control of all of this. You orchestrated this whole thing. God's agency and God's activity is emphasized. God was behind the consequences of Jonah's sin and the discipline for this wayward prophet. And the, the, the language of it, what does it sound like? Just think about your Bible stories in your head. You threw me into the depths of the sea. And the current overcame me. All your currents and your and your billows swept over me. I think of two stories in the Old Testament. You think of any stories of being swept by water or by drowning in water? The flood, right? Noah. And then you have the same actual wording in Exodus fifteen verse four, where and five, where it says. where they're singing about their celebration when they cross the Red Sea, and they sing this, he threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. I'm sorry, this is not the same Hebrew word, but it's the same idea. He threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. When when, when Jonah's talking about this discipline, he's talking about the judgment of God, at least a picture of the judgment of God. Jonah would have known his Hebrew scriptures. He would have known the story of God's judgment in the flood and his judgment on the Egyptians on the Red Sea. And Jonah's saying, and now I was like that. I'm in the ocean and I'm being judged for my sin because the wages of sin is death. And here I am sinning against you. And so the way you judge them in the flood, the way you judge them at the Red Sea, you're judging me for my sin and you are just to do so. So God, Jonah faces God's response here to his hard heart and to his sin. And he mentions it. He, He admits it. Now, Interestingly, in this whole prayer, Jonah doesn't really mention his sin and defiance that put him in the ocean. He said, "You put me here." He didn't say why he. I mean, why were you in the ocean to begin with? No one told you to go on a boat. You are supposed to go to Nineveh, which is five hundred miles on land. Why are you in the ocean? Because you went to the boat. Okay, so he doesn't mention that. He doesn't mention his part in it. He just mentions what God has done to him. But you have discipline there. Okay, you have the Exodus judgment language there, and then and then from the discipline of God, you have the realization. And this is always important. If you're going to be saved through repentance, you have to realize that you're being judged. You have to realize that you're being disciplined. You have to realize your sin. And so what does it say in verse 4? While Jonah is being swept over by the waves and drowning, verse 4 begins with, but I have been banished from your sight. There it is. He realizes, even with this judgment, I have been banished from your sight and he says I said but I said so here I am drowning and Jonah finally speaks who's he speaking to when he says I've been banished from your sight who's he speaking to God God. now this he's saying he said this while he's in the water before he's in the belly of the fish this prayer is a recounting it's a prayer of thanksgiving of what was going on when he was drowning okay he doesn't get into the fish until verse until the end of verse 6 okay so verses 3 through 4 3, 4 and 5 he's drowning And while he's drowning, he finally speaks to God. Was he invited to speak to God earlier when he was on the boat? Do you remember that? Who invited him to speak to God? The crew, crew, right? The captain, right? Get up and what? Call out to your God. He doesn't pray to God. He still hasn't prayed to God. Ever since he got the command from God to go to Nineveh, he hasn't spoken to God. And now finally, he realizes that he needs to go to God. And so while he's drowning in the water, he finally speaks to God. He was giving God the silent treatment. And now God kind of twisted his arm to the point where he can't keep quiet anymore. So he speaks to God and he he begins praying while he's under discipline at sea. He begins praying. What is prayer? Tim Keller says, prayer is a personal communicative response to God's communication. I like what he says here. Prayer is answering God as he speaks to us in his word. It's entering into the conversation. Do you realize that prayer is reactive, not proactive? In prayer, you are reacting always to God initiating. Right? When you pray for your friend's salvation, you you feel burdened for your friend's salvation. Why do you feel burdened for their salvation? Who put that on your heart? God God did. And why do you know that they need salvation? Because God told you in the word and God is already speaking to you and prayer is the response back in finishing the conversation. So God is always speaking to us Prayer is us responding to God and finishing the conversation rather than ignoring him. I like that definition of prayer. So Jonah has been ignoring God and giving him the silent treatment while God has been talking to Jonah the whole time. And so Jonah speaks back to God. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is talking back to God and entering into the conversation. One other preacher said, prayer closes the gap of distance as we get closer to God. You feel far from God and prayer closes that gap. Prayer is also the verbal processing of things to God so you don't sin against others. God's the one person you could talk to about anything, right? If you, talk, you can't talk to everyone about You can't talk to anyone else. With everyone else, there are restrictions in your conversation. There are God-given restrictions, right? There's such a thing as gossip. There's such a thing as slander. And so you can't just say whatever you want to whoever you want, whenever you want to. But with God, he knows it all anyways. And you could pray and verbally process things with... God And so here's Jonah praying to God. And when you pray to God, you gain insight, hopefully for your life and for loving God and loving others. So the point here is Jonah has space here in his praying to God to realize that he's under God's discipline. So let me give an application to our church family. Brothers and sisters, we need space to process our trouble and distance from God. Matt Chandler says it this way. Our churches should be environments where it's okay to not be okay. While also saying it's not okay to stay there. So let me just say this to you, Christian, non-Christian, visitor, member of the church. It's okay for you to not be okay right now. It's just not okay for you to stay there. Yes, you need a process. Yes, you need to pray. You need to think through things. You need encouragement. You need repentance. You need cleansing. You need to work through issues in your life. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. And our church needs to to, to really let this go deep into our church's culture, where we don't have a a mask we put on on Sundays and pretend everything's okay. It's okay to not be okay and to work through things as we pursue Christ and getting closer to him. Now, I ask this question, why didn't Jonah pray earlier? When he felt his heart resistant. He shouldn't. He should have, right? Why didn't he pray when the sailor told him to pray? He should have. We don't know exactly why. Jonah didn't pray, all the reasons why Jonah prayed, but we do know part of it is because sin hardens your heart. Sin isolates you from God and from God's people. That's what sin does. So why doesn't Jonah pray? Because he was making peace with his sin, and sin has a blinding effect on you. Amen. It blinds your heart, it blinds your eyes, and dulls your heart to God. You can't see him, you can't sense him, and so you start to ignore him and you stop praying. Now, Jonah admits the consequence of his sin. Look at verse 4 again. He says, I have been banished from where? From your sight. What's the consequence of his sin? God's face is hidden. God is not looking on him. Now, that's funny, because in Jonah chapter 1, who is running from who? Who is running from whose face? Jonah was running from God's face. And now Jonah's saying, oh, my punishment is that you're hiding your face from me. Well, you're the one running from my face, right? I mean, you went as far and you put as much money and planning as you could to get away from my face. But Jonah still realized it's still a consequence. You know, often the consequence of sin is sin. The consequence of sin is more sin. That if you sin, God lets you continue to sin. And if you run, God lets you continue to run. You harden your heart and he allows it to get harder. That's a consequence of sin. And so he wanted to run from God's face and the consequence was God hid his His face, he was banished from God's sight, from his favor, in a sense. Now, this word banish, it's used somewhere else in the Bible, in the Garden of Eden. When God banished Adam and Eve from the garden, banished from his presence, banished from his favor, banished from his place, banished from his kingdom, in a sense. And so here, Jonah realizes, my sin has driven me away from you. And from your favor. Now, how did Jonah come to realize that he's been banished? Well, you got a lot of time to think when you're floating on sea by yourself, right? And then you're in a fish for three days and three nights. You get a lot of time to think there. With our smartphones and pings and alerts, we often don't have a lot of time to think these days. But we need time to think, we need time to reflect. And realize oftentimes we, and as he's realizing things, oftentimes we want resolution to the situation and God wants to be present with us. He wants us to see that resolution to the situation isn't the goal, but drawing near to him is the goal. Trusting in him is the goal and resting in him is the goal in the midst of your chaos. When we get put in this pickle where we're stuck in our sin and we're in these uncomfortable situations, right? Because of our sin, we're in these uncomfortable situations and we just pray, God, get me out of here. And God's saying, hold on, getting out of here is not the best thing for you necessarily. I'm the best thing for you. I want to spend time with you. I want you to spend time reflecting and drawing near to me. And then you can know how to, how to move in the midst of the chaos. And so Jonah realizes His sin, he realizes that he's far from God, he realizes that he wants to be near God, and you need to realize how far you are from God before you repent. Actually, that's the turning point in repentance. Do you guys remember the story of the prodigal son? There was a son who ran away from his dad, took all the money, took his share of the money, said, Dad, I wish you were dead now, because I want I wish I could have your will now, but you're still alive. But if you were if you would have died, that would be really cool, because then I could get all your money now. And the dad said, Well, you can have it now anyways. So he gave it to his son, his son left. And as his son leaves, he spends all the money. He ends up broke and, 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 and um, homeless. And he's living at a, in a pigsty feeding pigs for his job. And as he's doing that, it says in Luke 15, as he's there with the pigs, he came to himself and said, I'll rise and go to my father. You hear that? He came to himself. He realized where he was, where he should be, who his dad was, and the way out. You are not saved until you realize your sin, where you are, who God is, and and the way out. You need to wake up. You need to come to your senses. That's what the prodigal son did in the pigsty. That's what Jonah does here while he's floating and trying to stay above the waves. He woke up, unlike the older son who didn't realize his need, right? And rejected his dad at the end of that story, the prodigal son. Now, one of the brothers here, um, our brother John, in, in his email to the church asking questions about Jonah chapter 2, he said something to the effect of, like, do you always have to hit rock bottom before you wake up? And, and what if you just presume that once you hit rock bottom, God will just save you automatically? Well, no, you have to repent, right? You have to realize. But do you need to hit rock bottom every time to realize the weight of your sin and the predicament you're in? No. Is it possible to realize sooner? Yes, right? Didn't the Ninevites in the next chapter, Jonah 3, Jonah proclaims that for, for three days, or I don't know how long, he proclaims that Nineveh, that judgment's coming, and do they repent? Do they realize? Yes. yes. Did they have to get hit rock bottom? No. So you don't need to hit rock bottom. Jonah did for him to get it, but you don't need to hit rock bottom. Peter had to hit rock bottom. Remember when Jesus warned Peter and said, tonight, before the rooster crows the next day, you're going to deny me? Three times. And Peter, instead of, what he could have done is ask God for help right there. I am? Lord, help me. What should I do? How, give me grace. Show me how to, to prepare for this. That's the humble answer, right? Listening to God's warning and receiving it and waking up and realizing that you're weak. What did Peter do instead? Do Jesus, you've, you've never been wrong before, but this time you <laughs> went too far. You just went too far this time. You're wrong about me, Jesus. I will not deny you. I will die for you. He needed to hit rock bottom and deny Christ three times before he realized. But you don't always have to hit rock bottom. You can just get a word from God like the Ninevites did and repent right away. And that's actually the more comfortable way of doing things. Um, Or how did Paul, when he was knocked off his horse, he really didn't hit rock bottom. He didn't really just hear a word from God. He was rejecting the gospel when he was killing Christians in Acts chapter 9. How did he turn? He wasn't wrestling with guilt like Jonah was and Peter was. He didn't just hear a word from God and submit like the Ninevites did. What, did. what did Paul do? He was confronted by a vision of Christ and a word from the Lord. So sometimes it takes a word from God plus an eye-opening experience with God to turn. So I don't care how you realize, whether you hit rock bottom to realize that you need to turn to God, whether you just hear God's word, that's the best way, and just turn to God, or whether you need an eye-opening experience out of nowhere that comes out of left field for God to knock you off your horse. And give you a word so that you turn to God. The point is, there is no salvation through repentance without realizing where you are. You need to realize your sinful predicament. You need to realize the mess you're in. And so there's realize, so discipline. And there's realization in this picture of salvation through repentance. The next one there, letter C, right there, number two, is hope. Hope in the midst of hopelessness. Look at verse four. Verse four, the second half of verse four has the hope. So here I am, I'm in the sea, you're you're judging me, you're either disciplining or condemning me, I remembered, I'm going to pray to you now, I, re- I realize where I am, and then what is he saying in verse 4? Yet I will what? Look what's more where? Toward where? Your holy temple. He will look toward God's holy temple. There's hope by looking at the temple. He looked to the temple for forgiveness and reconciliation. We'll explain that more in the next point. But the point is, Jonah looked with hope when he was in judgment. In contrast to Eli. Do you guys know the story of Eli? He was the one right before Samuel. In 1 Samuel, we're reading through 1 Samuel um, with our kids in our family devotions. And um, Eli is told by someone, by by Samuel actually. Oh, was it by Samuel? I'm not sure. I can't remember right now off the top of my head. But Eli was told, you're going to be judged because you're not disciplining your kids. And you're going to die. And the ark is going to be taken away. And you know what Eli says? Whatever God's will is, it's God's will. He doesn't repent. He doesn't turn. It's almost like, well, God declared judgment, so I guess I'm just going to be judged. That's fatalism, brothers and sisters. For those who emphasize the sovereignty of God in all things like we do, and we should, because the Bible says that God is sovereign over everything, that doesn't mean we don't have choices. That doesn't mean we don't have responsibility. It doesn't mean we shouldn't turn. We don't just say, well, God said it, so it's going to happen. I guess I can't do anything. That's a satanic twist to biblical truth. There is hope. And Jonah looked to the temple in hope. Now, further on, just reading verses 5 and 6 quickly, he describes the hopeless situation. So there's hope in the midst of hopelessness. Look at verse 5. The water engulfed me up to my neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Now, and then verse 6, I sank to the foundations of the mountains. I'm sinking down in the water. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Wow. There are a few things scarier than drowning, right? Have you ever, I mean, almost every kid has had an experience where you thought you're drowning at least just for a split second. You might have get, got pulled in the undertow in the ocean. I remember for me it was, um, we, had the, we, my, we had a pool when I was growing up and we had the, the cover to the pool so that leaves don't get in the pool with a bubble wrap on it, or so whatever on the top looked like bubble wrap. It wasn't quite bubble wrap, but something like that on the top of the pool. And when I was a kid, I, st- I, I thought I could walk on it. As I was a kid, I think I was four years old. I don't remember much. I just remember, like, the thing wrapping around me, and I'm drowning in the, in the spa, and then I don't remember who pulled me out. But drowning is, I mean, I could still, I don't really remember a lot from my childhood. I remember looking up and remember, like, my hands, and I could remember, like, the thing around me. Drowning is, those are memorable. You know, when that fear strikes, man, that cuts real deep, right? Like you get real scared right away. And so here, Jonah is starting to realize as you're swimming, I'm not getting out of this. We think the fish came right away, right? I mean, you kind of think that from verse 17. The fish didn't come right away. He's swimming. He's praying. The seaweed's there. The waves are, are going. He's starting to have regret. He should have repented earlier. He should have never been in the ocean. But here he is. And you're starting to realize things as you're at death's doorstep. And then he starts to literally sink. He's tired now. He's done swimming. He has no more energy left. And he starts to sink. It says in verse six, I sank to the foundations of the mountains. That's the bottom of the sea. The foundations of the mountains are the bottom of the sea. So he sinks down. Remember, Jonah was going down. Remember that from last, last week in Jonah chapter one. He went down to Joppa from Jerusalem. He went down to the boat from the pier. He went down to the bottom of the ship. When you're running from God, you're always going down, down, down towards death. And now he actually is literally down at the bottom of the sea because of his defiance towards God. And he calls it interestingly, if you look here, look at verse six, the earth's gates. Now the earth's gates, that's one way of translating it. That's not the only way. You could count, you could translate that the place of the dead or Sheol's gates, the gates of Sheol. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against me, the gates of death. So, so Jonah's saying, I am, look at verse 6 again. The earth's gates shut where? Where did it shut? Behind him. So if this is the gate to the, the realm of the dead, he's saying, the gate shut behind me. In other words, I pretty much died. I was as good as dead. I was effectively dead. I was at the bottom of the ocean. And, and when you're drowning, you could still have a few thoughts while you're losing your oxygen, right? And he could pray to God. He could remember a few things. And he's just realizing, I'm dead. I'm, I'm dying right here. This is it. This is the moment. I'm dying right here. And so he hits rock bottom, the lowest of all points, hoping in God, looking to the temple, sinking in the water, and then maybe losing consciousness. And then the end of verse six happens. What's the end of verse six say? Then what? Then at that point, when you sunk to rock bottom, then what? You raised my life from the pit, Lord, my God. God, this is the turning point in the prayer. This is why he's thankful. God saved Jonah at the bottom of the ocean. With what? With a fish. God saved Jonah with the fish. This is where the fish comes in. Jonah sinks to the bottom. He's praying and God saves him. He pretty much passes out and then he wakes up and where is he? In the belly belly of a fish. And then he prays this prayer of thanksgiving. That's what he does. Because he was praying and, and, and calling out to God as he's sinking down to the bottom. And now he is praising God or thanking God this prayer here. In the, in the belly of the fish as he's there for three days and three nights. Now, just a short word here on the history of it. Did this happen? Um, is this historically true? I believe it's historically true. I mean, First Kings 14 talks about Jonah as a historical figure. So um, the question is, well, how is this possible? There's three options to this. Um, the third option is not talked about much, and I, I wouldn't presume it to be true. But the first option is that there are some fishes where it's humanly possible to stay inside and still live. Okay. I don't know if that's true, but that, that's one possibility, right? If this happened, that there are some fishes or some whale or some big sea animal that a human can actually stay alive in for three days and three nights. Option two, that this was miraculous. This is where I leave. That it was a miraculous saving of his life in the fish, in the belly of a fish. Why do I think it's miraculous? Well, one, I don't know of any fishes that can do this, but that doesn't mean a lot because I don't know a lot of things. Uh, but secondly, um, Jesus calls it a sign in... Matthew chapter 12, where he says, the sign of Jonah, you guys have seen the sign of Jonah, now you're going to see the sign of Jonah in my life. And Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. So it just seems like a miraculous, that that was a miraculous sign there. This is a miraculous sign here. If you go either way, the third one is that Jonah actually died and God raised him from the dead. Which is a third view, and that that could be possible. I don't think that's the one, but it doesn't matter which way it happened. The point is that it happened. That Jonah was swallowed up by a fish. He prayed this prayer of thanksgiving and God is using it now to speak to us this morning. And this is much like Ephesians chapter 2. So Jonah is dead in his sin here pretty much. And Ephesians 2, 1 says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of of the disobedient. We too all previously lived among the world in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children of wrath, as the others were also. So we are dead in our sin. We were rock bottom spiritually. And then it says in verse four, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, praise God that God is a God of love. He made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. That's a spiritual picture of what Jonah's showing us physically. Jonah was as good as dead in his sin. And then God, use these words, God raised his life from the pit. The gates of death closed behind him. He was already in death in his mind. And yet God raised him up. The way God raises raises us up together with Christ, even though we are dead in our sins. So... God delivers Jonah. So there's the, story, there's, the pat, there's the picture of Jonah's deliverance. Here he is drowning and you get, he's disciplined in the water. He realizes he needs God and he calls out to God. He hopes by looking at the temple and then he's finally saved as he hits rock bottom. That's the picture. You, need, you just need to let that picture sink into your heart and mind, okay? That's the point here. Jonah wants us to recount that. Now, before we get to the third point on the pattern, imitating the pattern of repentance, of salvation through repentance, I need to answer one more question here. And this is in light of the whole book of Jonah. Was Jonah really repentant here? Okay. So I want to take a survey here. Just raise your hands. Okay. Was Jonah really repentant here in Jonah chapter 2? Okay. Because in Jonah chapter 4, if you guys have read to the end of the story, it's not a long book. He is still angry at God for saving the Ninevites. And he seems very much at odds with God's heart. So was Jonah really repenting here for not bringing the word of God to Nineveh? How many of you say, yes, Jonah was repentant? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you say, no, he wasn't repentant? Raise your hand. Oh, man, it's about half. Well, a little bit more for yes. And because we're Baptist, the majority wins, right? Not usually. I mean, not, not when you're talking about Bible questions. But let me give you reasons why no and yes. So here's why you think, well, no, Jonah didn't repent. Here's why. Because doesn't chapter 4 say that he, he, he didn't really understand his sin? And not only that, furthermore, he doesn't even really mention his sin or grieve over it. Doesn't Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted? He's not mourning over his sin. He's mourning over the consequences of his sin. And if you've, talked to, if you've dealt with your own unrepentant heart or the unrepentant heart of others, you know it's easier to repent or feel bad about the consequences of your sin than your actual sin. And when you do that, you're not really repenting. No one likes to be swallowed by a fish. No one likes to drown in the sea. It's not hard to grieve over the fact that you're drowning at sea. But grieve over the fact that you're defying God? That's real repentance. And so you might say, well, no, that's not real. is not really repenting here. On the yes side, people might say, well, he is saved. It says salvation belongs to the Lord. And wasn't he saved? And doesn't salvation come through repentance? And then um, another reason why you might say yes is, can't you repent and still fight the same sin after you're repented? Have you ever talked to a I mean, you don't have to be a teenage uh, male to do this, but sp- specifically teenage males, but you can go as far as um, older men as well. But have you talked? Have, have you, as a teenage male ever repented from lust? And does your temptation just go away because you repented as a 16-year-old? You'll never face that temptation again, right? Wrong. You don't have to be male. You don't have to be 16 to face that, right? But the point is, there is such a thing as repenting truly and yet still wrestling with temptations after, right? And even relapsing. That's a possibility, And not only that, I mean, furthermore, on the yes side, repentance can be real but shallow and immature. Faith can be that way, right? Remember the the guy who said um, to Jesus when he was going to cast the demon out of his son, I believe, help my unbelief. You can have imperfect faith. You can have immature faith. You can also have immature repentance. It's not impossible to do that. Maybe Jonah was never taught how to repent. You know, when a lot of biblical counseling for me when I counsel members of our church and others, oftentimes it's just teaching people how to repent thoroughly. That's why we do a prayer of confession here every Sunday. We want you to learn to name your sins and call it out and feel the wickedness and the rebellion. And we want to actually not just feel it. We want to actually repent to God because we need to learn how to repent. So the shallowness of Jonah's repentance, if it was true, he still ended up ungrateful in chapter 4. Um, but he could still maybe be truly repentant. Okay, so what's the answer? Was he truly repentant? Yes or no? The answer is I don't know really. But my I would lean I lean towards I lean towards yes. So that's where I'd, I'd place my flag now. But either way, even if on even if you're on the no side, don't don't lose me here. Okay, even if you're on the no side, the point still remains. Here's the main point. Okay, the main point is this: um, we cannot be comfortable in shallow repentance and faith, right? Don't be comfortable with shallow repentance and faith. To him who knows what is right to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So repent as best you know how, as thoroughly as you know how. And let others in the church teach you how to repent. Okay? So even if Jonah didn't repent, we should still repent, shouldn't we? We shouldn't be like, well, Jonah didn't repent, so I don't have to. No, no. If you think, no, it wasn't true repentance, you should still learn from his bad example how to do it truly. Okay? And let's go to number three now, our last point. And really, I think this is really getting at the main point of the sermon because this is the main intention is we need to do this in our lives. We need to experience salvation through prayerful repentance, right? So how do we do it? We imitate the pattern of salvation through repentance. So here's the pattern. You have the pattern in verses 7, 8, and 9. Let me read read it to you, and then I want you to see the three-step pattern here. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols, abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. You see the three steps there? The first thing Jonah did in verse 7 is what? He did what to the Lord? Remember. So number one, remember. And then number two, where did he look in his prayer? Where did his prayer go? To where? To the temple. So look. Look to the temple. So remember. Look. And then verses 8 and 9. Um, He says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I'll fulfill what I have vowed. Live. Here's the pattern of experiencing salvation in your life. Okay, brothers and sisters? Here's what it is to to experience salvation through repentance. Remember, look, and live. You got it? That's A, B, and C there for your notes. It's blank there. Remember, look, and live. Let's look at these one at a time. Remember. Remember. What does it say in verse 7? As my life was fading away, I remembered Yahweh remembering as his life was fading away now look at look, as you read as as i as my life was fading away or when my life was fading away he says when i was stuck in my sin when i was stuck in the the predicament my sin put me in when i got stuck in my sin then at that point i remembered the lord so remember the lord when you are stuck in sin when you remember who god is a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clearly guilty. When you remember who God is, that's the first thing to do. You need to remember who he is when you're stuck in your sin. You don't have to wait until you're, you hit rock bottom to remember the Lord. Remember, Why do we get together every Sunday? We're going to do the communion and it says, what, do this in what? Remembrance. Remembrance, why? You, that's the first step in experiencing salvation through Repentance. And faith—it's to remember and remember and remember the Lord. That was the command for Israel in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5:15. Remember that you were slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Deuteronomy 15:15. 15, 15, remember that you were slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord God redeemed you. That is why I'm giving you a command today. Deuteronomy 16:12. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Careful, remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and carefully follow my statutes. Remembering always precedes obedience. Remembering who God is and what he's done. God is the God of salvation and he saved us from Egypt. That's what Jonah should be thinking. I remember you redeemed our people from Israel from Egypt. I remember you, that you're the God who saves sinners. You're the God who breaks slaves out of slavery to sin and death in Egypt. And so you remember who God is. That's the main command, I think, of the Christian life. If Ephesians is a a letter talking about a general way to live the Christian life, you know what the first command in the book of Ephesians is? Remember. Ephesians 2.11 says, Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. Remember that at one time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember that you were dead in your sins, and now you're part of God's people. Don't forget that when you're stuck in your sin. He already saved you. So you can go to him again. Don't forget who he is because Satan will paint in your mind a picture of a monstrous God who hates you, who's cranky towards you, who's giving you the silent treatment. But what does Romans 2 4 say? Don't you recognize that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's God's kindness. When the prodigal son came to himself, he might have been saying to himself, you know, my dad is so mad at me. I said, I wish he was dead. My dad hates me. And when he went to his dad, where was his dad? On the doorstep and then running full speed to his son. That's God. And when you remember who God is, you can begin to repent. So first of all, remember, if you're going to imitate the pattern like Jonah did. Secondly, what does he do in verse seven? His prayer came to God. Where, where? In verse seven to God's holy, what God's holy temple, his prayer came. Why does he pray to a a temple? Have you, you remember Daniel and Daniel in the book of Daniel, he prays, he opens his window and prays three times a day towards where Jerusalem Jerusalem and the temple. Why does he pray towards the temple? Do you remember who built the temple originally? Who built the temple? Solomon. Solomon. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, you know what he said in his prayer? So he, de- he builds his temple, the smoke of God, the glory of God fills the temple, and all the priests just run out of the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, you can read it for homework if you want. And here's Solomon's prayer. Let me just read you a part of his prayer. He's praying and dedicating the building, the temple, and here's what he says. When your people sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin... And you are angry with them, and you hand them over to the enemy, and their captors deport them from the enemy's country, whether distant or nearby. And when they come to their senses, there it is, realization, right? When they come to their senses in the land where they are deported and repent and petition you in their captor's land, we have sinned sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked. And when they return to you with all their heart and all their soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive, when they're stuck in their sin, and when they pray to you—listen to this—when they pray to you in the direction of their land that you gave their ancestors, the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, may you hear from heaven your dwelling place— in their prayer and petition and uphold their cause. May you forgive your people who sinned against you and all their rebellions against you. May you grant them compassion before their captors so that they may treat them compassionately for they are your people and your inheritance. What is he praying here? When you are praying or when they, when they pray, where should they pray? Towards where? Towards the temple. And when they pray towards the temple, God, may you what? Hear them and forgive. Why? The temple was God's what? Do you guys know, the temple is God's footstool. God was in heaven, and his feet were at the temple. That's part of the imagery of the the temple theology, one of the images of it. And so if you want to pray to God, you pray to God. And where's God? Where's God's touching point with earth? At the temple. So wherever you are on earth, God, when, when your people, when they're scattered all over the world because of their sin... And they pray towards the land and towards the city and towards the temple and towards the Holy of Holies and your footstool because you're in heaven and your feet are on earth right here. When they pray to you, listen to them and forgive them. Jonah was a good Israelite in that regard. He had good Israelite theology. You always look to the temple. Why the temple? Not only because God's presence was there. That's where sacrifices were made, right? Where was atonement for your sin done? At the temple. Where was the priesthood exercising their priesthood? At the temple. Where did the high priest make his day of atonement sacrifice once a year? To cover the sins of the people. At the temple. And so you look to the temple. Because that's where sacrifices for sin is. That's where forgiveness is. And that's where God's presence is. You're in sin. Look to the temple. That's what Jonah was supposed to do. Now, the irony of it is in a few verses earlier, Solomon prays, even foreigners and Gentiles, when they look to your temple, forgive them. Now, Jonah doesn't get that part. (laughs) He didn't care too much about the foreigners at this point. But when you're at sea, you just want to be saved. What about today? Are we supposed to look to Jerusalem today? The Western Wall? Should you look to the temple and pray that way today? No. No. Who's the temple today? Jesus is the temple, isn't he? What did Jesus say in John 2? John 2. He said, Destroy this temple, John 2 19 and 22. Destroy this temple, and I will what? Raise it it up in three days. And the Jews said, It took us 46 years to build this building. You're going to raise it up in three days? And then John says, He was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture. When you are stuck in your sin, look to the temple. Who's the temple? Jesus. And how do you know he's a temple? His temple was broken for you. It was destroyed. He was judged for your sins. That's why his temple was broken and destroyed. And in three days, God what? Raised Raised it from the dead for your salvation. So when you're stuck in your sin, remember who God is and look to Jesus Christ, the temple. The one who was destroyed for your sin because that's the penalty of your sin condemnation under God. Jesus was condemned in your place. This is the gospel, right? If you're not a Christian and you forget everything I say, just listen to this one minute. Here's what you need to know, that God made you and he made us and we are all accountable to him. God made us to enjoy him. Yet we didn't want to enjoy God. We rejected God in our sin. And the judgment and penalty for that is destruction, is death, is condemnation in hell forever. Yet God sent Jesus into the world to be the temple who would be destroyed for you so that you can actually enter through his body. It says in Hebrews 10, 19 to 22, you can enter through his body into the holy place and you can be forgiven of your sin because Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead if, if you will turn from your sin and turn from your own personal righteousness and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so here's my invitation to you if you're not a Christian, call on Jesus to save you this morning. He will save you. Look to the temple. And that's what we do even if you're not, even if you are a Christian, right? We still look to the temple. Okay, so you remember, you look, and lastly, we live. Look at verses 8 and 9. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love, but as for me, I will live. I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. I will fulfill it. I'm going to live for you. So Jonah here says he's going to live towards God. You remember God, you look to Jesus, and then you live toward Jesus. A life of sacrificial worship. He says here in verse eight, people worship worthless gods, idols. Pitiful, stupid idols is another way of saying it. It's a pejorative term. He was mocking them. People worship stupid, senseless, useless idols. But me, I will sacrifice to Yahweh. I will fulfill my vows to Yahweh. Here Jonah so, and then he says in, in verse 9, look at it. As for me, I'll sacrifice to you with what? With a voice of what? Thanksgiving. thanksgiving. Gratitude. You know you're repentant when you're thankful. Now, Jonah prayed this where, when he was where? In the what? In the belly of the fish. This prayer of thanksgiving was in the belly of the fish. Okay, brothers and sisters, get, get this. Listen up. You should be thanking God before you get out of the fish. You should be thanking God for your salvation from death, even when you're still in your uncomfortable situation. At the core, thanksgiving stems from faith in the goodness of God. And when you complain, rather than give thanks, you show yourself to be doubting God's character, and specifically God's goodness. Okay, brothers and sisters, complaining reveals that you doubt that God is good. It's a statement saying, just put right next to your complaint, God, you're not good. So make your complaint and say, God, you're not good at the end of of every complaint because that's what you're saying. And thanksgiving, even when you're in the fish, is to say, God, I don't know how, but I know that you are good. You're good, and I thank you for being good. Brothers and sisters, we must give thanks for salvation and give thanks before the trial is fully over and before we get back into our comfort zones. So here, Jonah lives a sacrificial life. I will sacrifice to you a sacrificial life of gratitude, not grumpiness. Feeling the privilege of living with and for Jesus, and it says here he'll fulfill his vows. The sailors fulfill their vows. Remember, the sailors made vows in chapter one. Now Jonah says, "I'll fulfill my vows to you." Now Jonah's a prophet, so what is his vow? To speak for who? Speak for God. Now, typically, just generally, um, a vow would be, "I'm going to go to the temple. I'm going to make my. Son- I'm going to sing my song of thanksgiving. I'm going to make my thanksgiving offering." That's paying your vows, and it costs money. So Jonah says, I will live sacrificially. I'll speak for you. I'll give thanks to you. I'll pay for the sacrifices and make sacrifices to you. I will live for you and toward you and not live for my own selfish agenda anymore. I will find my joy in you. And though we can debate whether Jonah was authentically repentant here or not, we can still say this, that true repentance is turning from your ways, right? True repentance is changing your ways. Repentance is turning from your worship. It's turning your worship, words, works, and wallet toward God. Amen. Okay? Um, Repentance is turning your worship, your words, your works, and your wallet toward God. Everything. I'll pay my vows. I'll live for you. I'll speak for you. I'll worship you. I'll sacrifice to you. I'll thank you. We can't just thank God with parts of us and then leave our most valuable treasures apart from us. Right? That's why even David said with sacrifices, I'm not going to give the Lord something that costs me what? Nothing. Nothing. We're talking about missions, right? We're going to talk about giving to missions. Some of us have so much Bible knowledge, yet are so stingy with our money towards the kingdom. And that ought not to be, brothers. Repentance is everything. Worship, words, works, witness, wallet, all of it. It's all for God. It's all sacrifice to God. We are living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. It says in Romans 12, one. Now, why should you, you remember? what are the three again? Remember, look, and what? Live. Remember, look, and live. Why? Why should you continually remember, look, and live? At the end of verse 9, because salvation belongs to who? The Lord. the Lord. That's why we remember, look, and live. Because God will keep his covenant to bless cursed people through Abraham. We remember because God's grace belongs, or we remember God's grace because salvation belongs to Yahweh. We look to Christ because salvation belongs to Yahweh. We live toward God with sacrificial joy because salvation belongs to Yahweh. That's what Jesus' name means. Yahweh saves. In Matthew one twenty one, That's a Christmas story you should be reading this, this month. Matthew 1 where the angel says to Joseph, You know what you should name your son? Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Amen. His name means Yahweh saves. So repent, brothers and sisters. Experience salvation. Remember, look, and live. We are now the temple, aren't we? Isn't the church the temple now? Yeah. Application to the church. What does it mean for us as a church? That we need to point people to who? Christ. Christ as a church. When people look to the church, the body of Christ on earth, they should see and hear and experience Christ himself through us as we explain, embody, and enjoy Christ to them so that we bring them to the true temple, Jesus Christ himself. Children, last thing for you kids, look to Jesus in the scriptures and live. Make the Bible your most read and favorite book so that you see and trust Jesus over all. Brothers and sisters, let's repent when we're convicted. I have some verses here. I'm not going to read them for the sake of time. But in Revelation 9 and Revelation 16, these people are getting plagues from God. And it says they still didn't repent and give God glory. They refuse. As they're in the sea, as they're under God's pressure cooker, they still hate God. Brothers and sisters, don't do that. Non-Christian friend, if you're here this morning, don't keep running. Realize that God is calling you because he loves you and he wants to give you life. So, as you're in guilt under God's hand, remember God's grace, look to Christ, and live toward him. If you do, if you don't, you'll remain in guilt and sin. You'll lack peace in your soul. And you'll be miserable. And you'll harden your heart, making you useless in bringing others closer to God. But if you remember God... If you look to Christ, and if you live towards Christ, you'll experience forgiveness and restoration repeatedly in your life. You'll rejoice in God's goodness, and you'll be more gracious to other people. And you'll soften your heart and absorb more of God's grace to channel it to other people. So let us, brothers and sisters, experience salvation through prayerful repentance. Let's pray. I'll give you a moment to pray on your own, even as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember who you are when Satan tells us that you're not good and not gracious and not kind. We pray that we would look to Christ again and again and again. And then we pray, Lord, that we would live towards Christ with sacrificial joy, knowing that giving up everything for having Christ is the best deal in the world because you are the most satisfying and glorious of all beings. And in you, We get to enjoy everything else in life in the right way it's supposed to be enjoyed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.